Hi there, it's Will here, the God Emperor of Michael and Us Nation. A few bits of housekeeping before this week's episode. First of all, apologies that we were two weeks without free episodes. Luke and I seldom take vacation, but we needed a little time off at Christmas. You can find more recent episodes on our Patreon at patreon.com slash michaelandus, including a wrap-up of the year 2021, as well as a Patron's Choice episode. The community voted for us to discuss the movie Love Actually, so we tackled the most pressing political issue of our time, is Love Actually a good movie or not? You'll find the answer nowhere else. Uh, That and much more is available there, and you can expect us to be back in the saddle for our usual weekly free episode going forward. And now, on with a milestone I once thought we would never reach, episode 300. Let the eagle soar Like she's never soared before from rocky coast to golden shore let the mighty eagle soar i don't think i brought it up on the podcast at the time but did i tell you that i don't know sometime during the pandemic i can't exactly remember when time is a flat circle etc i watched the sofia coppola joint mary antoinette oh yeah so that is such a strange movie i mean uh sofia coppola you know virgin suicides is great i recently saw lost in translation for the first time she definitely has a few lesser movies you know the bling ring is not uh is not very good well Uh, you saw that right yeah i mean i don't know i wait you're a defender of the bling ring i mean not exactly i don't love the bling ring but i I don't know I, i probably gravitate towards it more than you do there's something almost defiantly empty about that movie something sort of defiantly <laughs> surface level about the movie to match how surface level all of its characters are that I, I almost kind of respect I'm not quite sure it's it's like yeah it's like it's like a Warhol silkscreen of a movie <laughs> Will Sloan uh, film Twitter's greatest defender of the canyons and apparently the bling ring as well <laughs> um, but the one I was going to mention was Mary Antoinette because I expected it to be about the days leading up to the French Revolution uh, you know through the eyes of the aristocracy, which it kind of is, except that uh, you never really see the revolution. Uh, The end of the movie, which I figured was, I figured we were just coming out of act two and then the movie just ends, uh, is when they leave Versailles for the last time. You know, Kirsten Dunst as uh, Mary Antoinette leaves uh, Versailles for the last time in a carriage. And, you know, there's maybe one scene of, of, you know, some plebs or something throwing stuff at the windows. But everything that happens outside the Versailles Palace is just a kind of weather event. It's sort of alluded to. It's not really given any kind of uh, meaning or content. And really, the whole movie is just uh, about, you know, her marriage and the decadent lifestyle of Versailles. I figured it was going to lead up to, uh, you know, her execution and that the movie was going to try to make us feel really bad about this. You know, it was going to be like, this is what the revolution, you know, took from everybody. This type of political order, it was set up basically to allow... uh, a tiny group of incredibly rich people to, you know, eat grapes all day and dress up in costumes that took two hours to put on and two more hours to take off. And, you know, this is what revolutionary fervor took from the world. But, like, it's not about that at all. It's not a political movie. And I guess what I'm coming to is I actually think I 
might have a sort of contrarian defense of it, similar to your defense of the bling ring. I mean, I don't think it's exactly a good film, but the fact that uh, the characters in the film and the film itself are so myopic about events outside of the palace almost kind of works in its favor. I actually like the movie for exactly that reason. I mean, it is, it is, I think it is a political movie because of these structuring absences. You know, Sofia Coppola is not stupid. She knows that she's leaving this stuff out. The act of doing that, the act of, I think, very consciously embracing her own blinkeredness, you know, there is, there is something political about it. And whenever a Sofia Coppola movie comes out, there's always a tremendous discourse about, oh, she's this rich person. She's, she's only telling stories from the perspective of upper class, poor little rich girl characters. And that's true. But I think there's some unfair pressure put on her because like she's one of the only name brand female directors, you know? There are so few of them who have reached the level of status and recognition that she has. And so, like, it stings people a little bit more that, like, this is the main perspective. Maybe, but she, I mean, she's made some pretty good films. Oh, no, and that's kind of the point. I mean, I like the films she makes, and a healthier film culture would have more and more varied films from female directors rather than just this and would just give more female filmmakers the same platform yeah absolutely but i mean on their own they are from this upper class perspective and like take it or leave it i think within that upper class perspective i think they're sometimes quite wonderful and she's certainly you know great on all the all the sensuous aspects of film you know the cinematography the costumes the lighting and you know she's not an unintelligent filmmaker either she leaves a lot of room for you to be critical of these lifestyles that she depicts but you know she's not pretending she has the base of knowledge to give you anything else well welcome back to michael and us everyone uh i'm luke savage and with me as always is will sloan and did you know that in the u.s you can buy a gun at a bank? <laughs> well, I was reminded uh, revisiting one of our older episodes today that uh, we used to begin the podcast with some kind of uh, slogan or, or quote uh, taken from a Michael Moore film. This is the 300th episode of the Michael and Us podcast. It's pretty hard to believe. We did our first episode back in, uh, I guess, the summer or late spring of 2016. I'm not exactly sure. Do you remember? Uh, yeah, I was thereabouts. I don't think Bernie had officially dropped out of the primaries, but I think the writing was on the wall. That's right. And, you know, we don't do too many of these kind of commemorative episodes, but I think we've done one maybe every hundred episodes or so. I don't remember what we did for our hundredth episode. I think since we originally recorded on them, we've uh, revisited uh, the Michael Moore film Slacker Uprising, which was the very first episode of the show. That was our pilot. And also uh, Roger and Me, the uh, the great film Roger and Me. And we did an episode two episodes ago looking back on the year 2021. So folks, we're, we are in a self-celebratory mood. You're just going to have to deal with that for that episode and this episode. And then for the next 300, we're breaking new ground. Yeah, if you've read any of my uh, writing recently or you've listened to any of our recent episodes, you know that uh, we've talked a lot about how, you know, a culture uh, becomes sclerotic, a, you know, a TV show or, or a film series becomes sclerotic when it starts to become uh, excessively self-referential and backward looking. And well, I guess we've reached the decadent uh, Palace of Versailles phase of the uh, Michael and Us podcast. Well, you know what I say to our Patreon subscribers? Let them eat cake.
folks. <laughs> well, originally, you know, we'd planned to do this episode on the Patreon, but since the show has really evolved uh, since our first season, you know, the first 19 episodes or so uh, were kind of Michael Moore related. Uh, since it's evolved so much, and since we now have tens of thousands of new listeners, I guess, since we did that first season, I feel like the kind of first run of the show we might have had, you know, 500 plays at least uh, when the episodes were released, you know, kind of for the for the first few anyway. And there are a lot more of you now. So with all that in mind, a lot of you probably haven't heard of the film Michael Moore Hates America, which we watched. I won't quite say with glee. I think it was pretty masochistic of us to uh, sit through this movie and even more so to sit through it again. But this was uh, episode eight eponymously titled Michael Moore Hates America. Not only did we initially watch, uh, revisit, I should say, all of uh, Michael Moore's cinematic corpus, but we also watched all of these kind of weird bargain basement uh, right-wing spin-off films, which came out of this era when, you know, Michael Moore was a best-selling author. You know, he had back-to-back, uh, you know, Bowling for Columbine and Fahrenheit 9-11, two of the biggest documentaries of all time. And, you know, he was a figure who the right was incredibly threatened by. Um, so what we found again and again when we watched these strange anti-Michael Moore documentaries was that a lot of these unknown right-wing filmmakers who made these things seem to have learned how to make films uh, and make documentaries by watching Michael Moore. So they all ape his style, and this film is no exception. Michael Moore had pissed me off. It wasn't his infamous Academy Awards speech. I mean, everyone has the liberty to bitch about politics. It's our right as Americans, and dissent is what makes us a great nation. But this guy had painted a picture of my country as a place where no one can succeed. Where some dark shadowy figure was deep below ground, running his multinational corporation, keeping you from living your American dream. And he told people around the world that we were stupid. And he told the Australians that the last place they should try to be like is America. That's the worst thing you could do to become like America. And he was always talking about how great Canada is. What is the Canadian ethic? The Canadian ethic is... We're all in the same boat. We're all Canadians. I wanted to watch this movie because this to me was kind of the definitive anti-Michael Moore documentary and uh, certainly the definitive conservative work of our first season. And something we've talked a lot about on this podcast is how so much political commentary is meta commentary. It's not about the thing itself, but about the way we talk about that thing or the optics of the thing or what people are saying about the thing. And usually it's liberals who are the worst offenders here. What tickles me about this movie is that it's a conservative film that's kind of doing this. It's called Michael Moore Hates America, but at several points, the director host of the film, named Michael Wilson, says that the title is satiric. It's actually a comment on toxic political discourse. Uh, and if you if you say so, bud. Um, listen, this is a homemade amateur documentary that made some waves on the internet 15 years ago, uh, so much so that it was actually reviewed on the Ebert and Roper show, and they gave it two thumbs up. Which, I mean, if, if Roger Ebert were here right now, I would have a word with him about that. But despite that, this is a uh, almost charmingly homemade documentary. The sort of movie that was made in the, in the very early years of filmmaking being democratized, when something like this was still a novelty. It's sort of charming how homemade it is. Like, it doesn't really feel like a movie that was hatched by a conservative think tank. You know, it was made by a real and genuine moron with a movie camera who blew his life savings on it. 
So for that, and the fact that it's clearly a conservative movie trafficking in a lot of conservative ideas, but that wants to frame itself as apolitical, it seems such a peculiar time capsule. No conservative movie would look like this now. If a movie was called Michael Moore Hates America Now, it would look very different than this. Yeah, revisiting it, uh, it really is striking how much the filmmaker shies away from aligning himself with the very ideas that he's in the act of promoting. This film employs, as as I think you already said, you know, a lot of tropes that you would associate with kind of liberal filmmaking. And specifically the films of Michael Moore, which this movie unabashedly apes the structure of. We see the filmmaker's baby photos at the beginning. It's a first-person documentary where he's the David in pursuit of a Goliath. That's right. He's trying to track down Michael Moore uh, and get an interview with him, exactly like uh, Michael Moore with Roger Smith in Roger and Me. The parallels don't stop there. We hear about his, you know, blue collar background and how his dad was a blue collar worker employed somewhere in manufacturing, you know, how his family suffered from economic dislocation uh, because his dad got laid off. There are a number of times throughout the film where Michael Wilson will get an interview with someone and he'll kind of get it under false pretenses and then we'll sort of see him having to grapple with the ethics of this. I loved that, by the way. The movie had me on its side, kind of, when he was (laughs) grappling with documentary ethics. That's when you realize, okay, this guy's an idiot, but he is sincere. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny because he really tries to kind of cover all his bases by including these moments where he's reflecting on his own documentary ethics. But you repeatedly see him, I think it's safe to say, uh, break his own standard for what constitutes a fair and balanced interview. And it's so funny how pedantic a lot of his criticisms of Michael Moore are throughout the movie. Oh, man. It's exactly the same kind of pedantry and kind of decontextualized cherry picking of facts and things like that, 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 you know, he's accusing Michael Moore of doing. There's so much discussion of documentary ethics in this movie. In fact, I think Michael Moore, his golden period of filmmaking, sparked a kind of nationwide discourse on the subject of documentary ethics and you had all these people who you know there had been debates about documentary ethics for as long as the forum existed and then you've got a guy like this talking to albert mazels as if he's just like planting his flag on the moon i mean maybe we're getting out of ourselves but he repeatedly shows himself interviewing pen gillette yes folks (laughs) pen pen gillette who is talking like he's giving a master class in documentary <laughs> ethics saying so so much so, saying such profundities as if you're trying to make a political case um keeping yourself honest is doable mm-hmm. if you're trying to do a documentary keeping yourself honest is I think impossible, but within certain certain boundaries is doable. I mean, you have to quote people out of context. People aren't in this room with me. People didn't see me walk out from the kitchen. You're going to do some editing. Uh, you're going to do that. You're automatically lying. But you can kind of come in and do that kind of stuff. If you're going to do comedy, you can kind of stay sort of kind of honest. You start mixing those three together. It just becomes, you know, three-dimensional chess, you know, underwater with a gun to your head. Yeah, Penn Jillette in this film, uh, this was one of the only real interviews that Michael Wilson was able to get. Uh, one of the funniest things about this movie and one of the things that really adds to its charm is that some of the interviews are clearly just him ambushing someone with a camera and getting like five usable seconds. There's a hilarious one uh, that's a walking interview with just some random, I can only assume, Republican congressman where the camera's all almost like shaking and the guy's just saying the great thing about America is that anyone can succeed and then it just cuts away 
or there's another one where he's talking to Dinesh D'Souza and it's outside, <laughs> it's, it's, it's in front of an escalator or something. And the type of uh, shtick that he gets from D'Souza is like, it's as if he's just, you know, put a quarter in and he, or a dime <laughs> into a machine and, he, and, you know, you get exactly, you know, five or 10 cents worth of, of pure D'Souza-ism, totally decontextualized from anything really. It's like, go up to Dinesh D'Souza. Why is America great, sir? Put the dime in him. And then he says, well, America is great because it's the only country in the world where you can choose your own destiny. And as an immigrant, I found that firsthand. There it is. There's there's his whole thesis. But so Penn Jillette is is really one of the only kind of extended interviews. And I mean, I say extended, it's probably no more than 15 or 20 minutes. But Oh, it's brutally extended. All right. What, <laughs> what's so funny is that Penn Jillette is really giving it 120%. He is leaning so hard into the Penn Jillette persona. And he has the energy of Philip Seymour Hoffman in The Master talking about how, uh, well, you know, most of us haven't seen the pyramids ourselves, but we know they exist for learned men have told us so. He's constantly saying these like dunderheaded things, but because he just <laughs> says it with such enthusiasm, with such like chin stroking vigor, he he all, he comes halfway towards selling it. There's There's a part where he's talking about the way that Michael Moore uses Charlton Heston, and he says, well, Charlton Heston, he's old, and he played Moses or God or whatever. So to use him as a symbol of the other side is is very underhanded. <laughs> and when you think about it for a sec, you think, well, it's not underhanded at all. It's, it's overhanded, if anything. It announces its intentions. And you know, <laughs> in addition to being the guy who played Moses, Charlton Heston is also the president of the NRA. Like, he, he literally is the other side. He's not just a symbolic representative. <laughs> yeah, Penn Jillette just dispenses these completely banal uh, truisms about documentary filmmaking and a bunch of other things, you know, truisms about the idea of objectivity and how it's, you know, a fraught concept and things like that. He dispenses these revelations like he's arrived at them after, you know, meditating for a hundred thousand hours on a mountaintop, you know, <laughs> high above the clouds. And, you know, he's, he's just momentarily descended to earth to sit on this filmmaker's couch. And talk about how it's hard to achieve objectivity when you make a documentary film. Anyway, we should get back to just telling the folks. I'm just so enthusiastic talking about this movie. It's just got so much stuff in it. But we should get back to telling the folks a little bit more about the framing device. You see, Michael Wilson is just an ordinary guy, a Midwestern fella, no connections to the entertainment industry and not somebody aligned with any side in the debate. Uh, <laughs> nevertheless, there's one guy who really annoys him, and that is Oscar-winning documentary filmmaker Michael Moore. <laughs> Michael Wilson in his narration says, and I quote, This guy had painted a picture of my country as a place where no one can succeed, where some dark, shadowy figure was deep below ground, running his multinational corporation, keeping you from living your American dream. And this rubs Michael Wilson the wrong way because he has a new daughter, folks. And somewhere out there, a documentary filmmaker who makes a movie every three to six years <laughs> is telling his daughter that she won't succeed in this <laughs> shithole country. So Michael Wilson decides to go out on a cross-country journey to score an interview with Michael Moore. There's something kind of charming about this guy because he's not disingenuous. He's somebody who really wants to frame himself as 
or think of himself as above ideology, as just a normal guy looking for answers. But he's obviously very ideological. Like a lot of people, he's very deeply invested and has been since he was a child in a certain vision of what America is and represents. And here comes this this one lonely, solitary figure in the American media landscape who's saying otherwise. And he's so invested in this vision that it actively bothers him. But he, he kind of doesn't want to confront the fact that he is ideological. So instead, he makes this this movie about documentary ethics and about uh, what do, what does it mean to love and hate America and and etc cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, and this is why, in spite of the film's constant efforts to portray itself as a sort of meta commentary on the ethics of documentary filmmaking and stuff like that, it really is a conservative film. Uh, you know, it has this implicit thesis that no one really has any right to complain about anything. Instead of complaining, you should just go and make something out of yourself. You should start a business. Well, you should become a documentary filmmaker like Michael Moore did. (laughs) Right. I mean, I mean, this is part of the problem with it is that one of the most generic right wing talking points that's constantly hurled at people on the left is always just, oh, you're envious. You just hate success. Things like that. You complain because you haven't achieved X, Y or Z. Go out and make something of yourself. I mean, this is a film whose target is a Palme d'Or winning filmmaker who at the time was one of the most successful cultural figures in America. The film really tangles itself into knots by making this complaint over and over again and then further tangles itself into knots by constantly telling us that actually Michael Moore and every dissident have every right to say all of this stuff. That's what makes America so great. But the reason that Michael Moore doesn't have the right to say that stuff, why Michael Moore specifically doesn't, is because of the way he plays fast and loose with the facts. That's kind of the loophole that Michael Wilson is going in through. So an awful lot of this movie is spent analyzing uh, alleged mistruths or half-truths in the Moore corpus. Early on, a lot is made of some editing that Moore did in Bowling for Columbine using footage of Charlton Heston at an NRA rally that was held in Michigan a couple days after Columbine, maybe 10 days after Columbine. And we see an interview with some NRA flack, you know, some NRA PR person saying, oh, well, if you watch the movie, you'll notice that this thing that Charlton Heston says in real life came a couple minutes after this other thing. And then when Michael Wilson shows you the not doctored footage, it makes no difference whatsoever. (laughs) You know, it's just a a longer version of the same point that we see Charlton Heston making in the film. But more importantly, this scene and so many other scenes like it are a strategy that Michael Wilson has of reassuring himself that he's not ideological. It's not about, it's not really about the substance of what Michael Moore is saying in Bowling for Columbine. It's about the dishonest way he's going about saying it. Now, obviously, when you look at this scene, you would say, okay, somebody who has a serious problem with the NRA is not going to be doing an interview with an NRA flack like this, right? This is clearly somebody who is much more bothered by a documentary filmmaker who makes a movie every three to six years than he is about anything the NRA does. But I think if you told Michael Wilson that, he would feel very troubled and very confused by that and would probably shoot a a self-portrait scene examining his own documentary (laughs) ethics. I agree with what you said about uh, his earnestness and how it's quite charming, because... 
he even includes a scene in the movie where he was invited on MSNBC. He was invited to go on Joe Scarborough uh, to talk about Michael Moore Hates America. And he was so nervous that he really couldn't get through it. I actually had trouble sitting through this. It was so awkward to see somebody botch an interview on live TV this badly. There's another scene late in the film where on the opening weekend of Fahrenheit 9-11, folks, on the opening weekend of Fahrenheit 9-11, when Michael Moore is busier than he's ever been in his life, Michael Wilson goes to New York to try to find his production office, doesn't have the address to the production office, instead accidentally shows up at the P.O. Box address, <laughs> and so leaves, leaves a bouquet of flowers for Michael Moore there. He knows he's kind of being funny showing this, but he also genuinely thought that he was just going to show up to Michael Moore's office. It's not like it is in Roger and Me, where it's very self-consciously performance art, like I'm going to the country club where Roger Smith goes to, but it's only to illustrate the broader point of the ecosystem that's in place to protect people like Roger Smith. No, this guy is a, is a more one-dimensional thinker than that. He really did go to New York on the opening weekend of Fahrenheit 9-11 to try to find Michael Moore. Yeah, there's some uh, hilarious overreach if we're talking about documentary ethics in this movie and, f and a few further examples of how Michael Wilson, I suppose, inadvertently does a lot of the things that he's accusing Michael Moore of doing. So one of the techniques he uses throughout is just going up to kind of random people on the street without really saying who he is and then just using whatever footage he gets. So he goes to some Michael Moore uh, speaking engagement at a university and he's talking to the people in line and he's just sort of saying things like, well, what do you make of some of the controversy around Michael Moore and some of the, you know, factual holes people have poked in his movies? And he doesn't really explain who he is, it's clear. He also doesn't actually tell any of these people what these alleged factual errors or omissions of context are. And then he just uses whatever footage he's able to get. Michael Wilson's journey takes him all over the North American continent. He even goes to one of the filming locations for Bowling for Columbine and the home of the Michael and Us podcast, Toronto, Canada, to examine if it really is the socialist paradise that Bowling for Columbine depicts. You know, in, in Bowling for Columbine, there was that montage of Michael Moore going to a couple of houses and opening the doors to show that nobody locks their doors in Canada. And there's a similar sort of cherry picking going on here, isn't there? In the way that Wilson, like, interviews a couple of panhandlers on the street, uh, who, by the way, speak a lot more sense than Michael Wilson himself does at any point in this documentary. He does uh, He does something really funny in recreating the Canadians don't lock their doors gimmick because obviously he's trying to create his own well actually Canadians do lock their doors which of course you know they mostly actually do but Michael Wilson is so earnest that he can't follow through on his own bits so he actually includes a shot uh, I suppose to his credit where he goes up to some random person's door and it actually is unlocked which is very <laughs> funny. That's the kind of little detail that adds to the accidental charm of this film. Now, of course, the original sequence in Bowling for Columbine, I think, was an example of something that Michael Moore did a lot during the mid-2000s that I at least have some friendly criticisms of, and it's by no means exclusive to him. I think because predominantly of Canada's universal healthcare system, something which is obviously still lacking in the United States, it's very tempting for American leftists, American progressives to draw on these narratives of Canadian exceptionalism. So, you know, we see clips of Michael Moore in, uh, in this movie a number of times talk about the Canadian ethic and how it's one of solidarity and things like that. 
And I don't think this is entirely untrue, at least when you compare the two countries. You know, there's obviously something to it. There are things like the material reality that healthcare is free at the point of use for most people, at least excluding a few areas where we still don't have national health insurance in Canada, like uh, dental and pharmaceutical. I would also say that rugged individualism per se is not really part of our national story, at least as much as it is part of the American national story. That's right. I mean, in the United States, capitalists, you know, both liberal and conservative capitalists have successfully created a civic religion around all these ideas about entrepreneurship and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and things like that. Canada's created plenty of uh, mythologies that, that serve its ruling class, but they happen to be different ones. Anyway, something that I think might be a little bit difficult for American listeners in particular to understand is the way that here in Canada, narratives of Canadian exceptionalism play a big role in standing in the way of actual progressive change here. But secondly, and and this is the really important point, they're often imported from the United States. And we also ourselves have a class of writers whose beat is basically to go uh, and write for foreign publications and explain how great everything is in Canada and how there are really no problems and how a CEO in Canada is just a nice person that you know sends their kids to the same school as you do. We don't have racism here, et cetera, et cetera. And so while I understand the temptation to appeal to this narrative of Canadian exceptionalism, it really doesn't help anyone in Canada or outside Canada to pretend that this country is some kind of twee backwater where everybody drinks maple syrup and, you know, the society is post-racial and has a Scandinavian welfare state attached to it. I mean, none of those things is true. Now, speaking of narratives of national exceptionalism, I mean, this film, which again and again waffles and purports to be this, you know, non-political documentary, non-ideological documentary about the ethics of filmmaking uh, is really just undergirded again and again with this uh, narrative of American exceptionalism that is deeply right-wing. Something else that's kind of accidentally charming about the film is I really don't think uh, the filmmaker intends that at all. I don't think he really has much sense of the narratives that he's trading in and what their implications are. And I think this really comes through in all of the coverage of uh, Flint itself, which of course is the leading character and the main location in Michael Moore's first film, arguably his best, Roger and Me. This is also where the film, I think, engages in its most absurdly pedantic criticism of Michael Moore. I'm pretty sure we noted this when we first covered the movie back in 2016. But back in the early 2000s, when I was frequently the only non-conservative voice on websites called things like moorwatch.com and snarkbait, which was a uh, little-known right-wing blog run by a guy called Dave that I used to visit a lot and, you know, be a fierce advocate for uh, the likes of uh, John Kerry and Al Gore. Something that came up on these forums over and over again, because, you know, this was the early 2000s. Michael Moore's stock was at an all-time high, and the conservative blogosphere was absolutely terrified of Michael Moore. They were so keen to discredit him. One of the talking points uh, they invoked over and over again which of course this film invokes too, was this idea that Michael Moore's hometown, he's lying about it, folks. It's not actually Flint. It's uh, its Davison. He's stealing Flint valor. <laughs> That's right. He's stealing the post-industrial valor of Flint. Now, I fired up the old Google Maps, which I think is something I did the first time we, we watched this film back in 2016, and confirmed that uh, Davison is basically a little satellite community of Flint. It's about a 10-minute drive from the center of Flint. If you look at it on a map, it's completely understandable how somebody who grew up in such close proximity to Flint would regard it as their hometown. I mean, it really is just absolutely grasping at straws. I mean, I didn't grow up in Woodstock, Ontario, 
but I grew up a 10 or 15 minute drive from there. So in some ways, that's my hometown. And Moore's father famously worked at the GM plant in Flint. So I think it's fair to say his family has a legitimate stake in the community and in this particular crisis. Yeah, and I mean, it's been a while since I watched Roger and Me, but is it more than one generation of his family involved in the auto sector in, in Flint, or at least in Michigan? And I think he had one uh, relative who participated in the famous Flint sit-down strike. I think that was his father, possibly. He might have been his grandfather, but and Moore himself was also the editor of the alt weekly, The Flint Voice. Uh, somebody with deep roots in in Flint proper, lest there be any skeptics. This section is interesting though, because this is when Michael Wilson briefly does seem a little bit challenged, a little bit shaken. At first, he tries to sort of divert attention away from this challenge with the whole Davison conspiracy, but there's kind of no getting around the fact that Flint is a severely depressed community. So. What does he do? He shows success stories from Flint. He shows a guy who's starting his own coffee shop, a guy who is starting his own alternative newspaper called The Uncommon Sense. This guy I like a lot because this guy used to work in New York City, uh, had a six-figure salary and a nice apartment, according to Michael Wilson, doing a job that involved making companies more efficient, which means he was the guy who downsized companies. But then when he began to have moral qualms about this job, he decided to move to Flint and start a business there. So this isn't exactly the kind of pull yourself up by your bootstrap story that is widely (laughs) applicable for the average Flint resident. We do see a more average Flint resident, though. Wilson shows an interview that he does with this woman who's just speaking out a window in a not very good looking house in a depressed block. And it's such a tragic scene. She keeps saying something like, the great thing about America is you can make it. You can make it in America. And in this context, what she means is, you know, if you work really hard, you can you can not die in America. That's making it in America (laughs) in this film. Yeah, that is the conception of making it that the film advances over and over again. And uh, whether he's using man on the street interviews or fleetingly captured moments with right wing talking heads like Dinesh D'Souza, they all repeat the same talking point over and over again. This kind of quintessential nugget of American exceptionalism, which is that the United States is the only country country where the individual comes first. You know, it's the only place where you have the chance to succeed, etc. Et it's cetera. the only place where you can shape your own destiny without an overbearing nanny state telling you what that destiny should be. Right. And this gets to what really the deep political thesis of this movie is, whether or not the filmmaker himself understands it. He's quite an earnest bloke and I don't want to be too hard on him. But there's this part earlier in the movie, which I think we've quoted, uh, which we might have quoted already, uh, when he, when Wilson himself says, I knew my daughter could be anything she wanted to in this country. But Michael Moore told her she couldn't because she she would be enslaved by corporate interests, et cetera, et cetera. So what the real thesis is here is that no matter what happens to you, you simply aren't allowed to complain. The only avenue that this film gives you is that you're allowed to start a business of some kind. Like you can start a business in a crumbling industrial community, but experiencing a hardship and then politicizing it in any way or positing that there there's some other solution besides just participating in the free market harder. 
That makes you one of the complainers. That's what quote-unquote hating America is, as this film formulates it. This puts Wilson in a bit of a bind criticizing Michael Moore, because Moore is, I think, pretty undeniably a a Flint resident who has made it. He's a Flint resident who has done something with himself, which is, you know, go out and make highly successful documentary films and best-selling books. Nevertheless, Wilson builds a strange case against him during this section, interviewing people who are sort of resentful that he made his success by lambasting Flint or that he he didn't stay in Flint and base his business out of there. Right. So this is the awkward balancing act the film attempts. Despite being a partisan for the market, Wilson tries to pivot here with this kind of communitarian argument where all of a sudden it's about, you know, remaining rooted in your community regardless of what happens there. Because, hey, you know, economic hardships come and go, but the community is here to stay. This runs up a little awkwardly against one of his other arguments, which is that it was totally fine for GM to pick up and leave the community (laughs) and disrupt the lives of thousands of people who lived there. But again, in trying to depict the, uh, you know, Flint economic renaissance, he runs into problems. And again, here I'll give him credit because he he accidentally captured some pretty amazing footage, which he left in the film. He's interviewing this guy who's opened a pizzeria or something uh, in what looks like downtown Flint. And as they're doing the interview or as he's filming, an irate customer walks out of the shop and smashes the glass at the storefront and they have to chase him down the street. So this appears to be happening in, in broad daylight uh, in downtown Flint and again, makes a little awkward for him to make the argument that he's trying to make, that actually things are fine. And well, hey, I filmed a suburban development over here. So, uh, you know, look at these few houses. Everything is fine. This is why I kind of like the guy. I mean, you've got to hand it to him. He really does take this documentary ethics stuff very seriously. You can tell that he doesn't want to include this footage, but that he has to. And then in including it, he has to find a way to sort of jerry-rig it into his thesis. He says something to the effect of, uh, you know, this is just a, a bump in the road. And, and he says, that's why we're different from other countries, you know, because we're uh, because we're self-reliant. And, you know, obviously we can move on from this and I don't want to preach to the choir too much. But one piece of uh, American exceptionalism I will grant is that I do think it's relatively exceptional in a bad way for a developed country to have such a narrow and non-textured conception of freedom as sort of the hegemonic thing that people have internalized. You know, there's a very simplistic binary you sometimes see invoked by American conservatives, but I think sometimes by right-leaning liberals also, which is this kind of individualist versus collectivist binary. So, you know, to be very general about it, the European countries are collectivist, you know, they elevate the state, they have a civic religion around the state, they limit individual choice, you know, they're paternalistic, etc., etc. America may have its problems, but it's different. It's a it's a society of individualism. It's the only society where individuals come first. Now, again, it's being very general here, but I think your typical European social democracy, even one that's, you know, undergone 30 years of neoliberalism, the average person is much freer than the average person in the United States. You're not free and you're not self-reliant. If your ability to access health care is at the whim of your boss, or if you have to give the majority of your waking life working to enrich someone else at a job you hate, and don't have any choice about it. In the United States, I think far more successfully than in many other parts of the world, the right has very successfully advanced this idea that really anything the state does, excluding the police and the military, really anything the state does beyond the protection of private property is an impediment on people's individual freedom, right? I mean, we saw this again and again throughout 2020, and I wanted to pull my hair out every time I watched one of those Democratic primary debates where, you know, these are politicians from the supposedly reform-minded liberal party making a case 
case against universal health care and using all these stupid talking points about freedom to do it. Remember Mayor Pete's Medicare for all who want it? You know, remember these this incessant insinuation that somehow having health care free at the point of use was going to take away your choice, your individual choice of different expensive insurance plans that most people can't afford anyway or lose as soon as they move from one job to another. Anyway, that's the idea of freedom this movie uh, advances and uh, unsurprisingly, it's a pretty narrow and stupid one. Now, I think you'll agree that we've been doing more than justice to the thrust of Michael Wilson's argument throughout the film. Uh, We've been kind of assembling the raw materials that he's provided into the coherent argument that he himself is unable to make. It's not easy, though, because he attacks Michael Moore from just about every possible angle. There are a lot of and a lot of his attacks just plain don't work. There's a peculiar section where he takes Moore to task for endorsing a lot of candidates who didn't win elections, such as Jerry Brown and Wesley Clark. We see stock footage of during the 1992 Democratic primaries, Moore uh, sort of railing against Bill Clinton and, and predicting that Bill Clinton would just be sliced and diced by George Bush. And Michael Wilson says something like, um, yeah, we all know what happened to that guy. One of the odd things Wilson does uh, to bolster this point is, you know, I, th- I think my favorite talking head interviewee in the film, even more than Penn Jillette, is this this psych- psychologist that he brings in whose t- task is to sort of psychoanalyze Michael Moore and explain why he is the way he is. Yeah, this guy somehow has like a chin stroking certitude to him that exceeds even Penn Jillette's. Like, it's just absolutely off the charts. And it's unclear who he really is. This is one of my favorite features of a certain kind of right-wing kitsch is a filmmaker like this knows that you're supposed to bring in experts who have appropriate credentials to comment on things. So you just get like some generic guy like this with no background, no one's ever heard of him. And then it just says, you know, PhD or whatever. And then this guy just delivers this armchair Freudian analysis where the conclusion is that Michael Moore backed all these people like Ralph Nader and Wesley Clark and Jerry Brown because he has a narcissistic personality, and if he backed winners, then he would have rivals. What does Michael Moore hate in this world? Himself. Wealthy, white, American males. It's also governed by jealousy, an enormous jealousy. Uh, A person with that disorder will want to run down anyone else who appears heroic or great. Well, what does he campaign against? Charlton Heston. Uh, George Bush, anyone in a position of power, Bush's entire cabinet in one book. He's not even friendly with the opposition because he writes hectoring letters to Al Gore, basically saying, you're calling on me to save your campaign. You screwed up big time, Al. The only people he can ever back are guys like Ralph Nader who will never succeed and therefore never become a rival of whom he has to be jealous. There's another uh, peculiar attack and I think unsuccessful one that Michael Wilson makes where he goes to Washington on the grounds that Michael Moore claims that he speaks for the majority of Americans who disapprove of George W. Bush. So Michael Wilson goes to the White House expecting to find protesters, but would you believe it? There are only three protesters that day, and none of them said anything about Michael Moore. Checkmate. Yeah, I mean, if we're talking about documentary ethics, this is as flagrant a violation as you can possibly make. I mean, the implication of this scene is that there really isn't any discontent about, you know, the war on terror or anything like that. There's no organized opposition to the Bush administration, you know, maybe just a bunch of angry libs in the blogosphere or something like that, and people going to Michael Moore movies. But I mean, you can't really show that if you just turn up in Washington on a random day. I mean, he turned up on a day when there wasn't a protest 
protests scheduled. And then there's this really gimmicky scene where he's like, look, we were able to play road hockey right in front of the White House because that's how... That's how we do it in America. Yeah, that's how little discontent there is right now. I suppose we should talk about one of the other most irritating kind of nitpicking scenes, which is the one where Wilson tries to deconstruct Michael Moore's famous did you know you can buy a gun in a bank segment from Bowling for Columbine. Oh, brutal. Yeah, so he goes to the famous bank where Michael Moore gets the gun in the opening scene of Bowling for Columbine. And of course, we find out from the people who were in that scene who work at the bank that, well, actually, you don't just get the gun at the bank. You have to fill out a form and then the gun gets delivered to a licensed firearm dealership. They don't just hand it out. The gu- they just don't hand out the gun at the bank. And Michael Moore was very insistent when he was making this documentary that, no, no, we need to show me getting the gun at the bank. We need to show me getting the gun at the bank. I mean, you know, Moore is arguably guilty of making a good story a little bit better. But the point is, he he nudged them to have uh, the gun delivered to the bank so he could pick it up there. And they said, sir, that's fine. You can come and pick up your gun. <laughs> I mean, Moore could have saved himself a lot of trouble, I think, just including that detail in the movie if he showed himself sort of like negotiating with them to get the gun delivered at the bank to show how easy it is. But in the movie, he specifically asked the bank manager, how many of these have you got? And she you know, says something like, oh, we have about 500 guns in our vault. In our vault, that's not on the premises, though. That's one of the central moments of dispute in the film, because Moore implies that the vault is there at the bank. I mean, I think it I think that the bank manager implies that by choosing to say it that way. But regardless, the point is just that this is a place where you can go and open up a bank account and get a gun. And it doesn't take too much prodding to get them to give Michael Moore the gun for the cameras. They would have been fine if the same footage was in a pro-gun documentary. But because of everything else that surrounds it, it's the same footage is suddenly not so good anymore. Just a few other things we should probably address. One of the more surprising people interviewed in the film is Albert Maisels, the acclaimed and legendary director of such documentaries as Gimme Shelter, Grey Garden, Salesman. He also seems to have been lured here under false pretenses. They have a conversation about documentary ethics where Maisels sort of says that, you know, he, he admires some of the things Michael Moore stands for. He really liked what he said in his Oscar speech, but, you know, that, that way of doing things, you know, having the thesis and then going out and being motivated by hate or whatever. Uh, that's that's really not my way of doing things. I mean, Albert Maisels is somebody who I think has been thinking about documentary ethics for a lot longer than Michael Wilson has. He's certainly aware that even in his kind of fly-on-the-wall cinema verite documentaries, there's really no such thing as objectivity. And, you know, if, if a movie like Gimme Shelter or Salesman resonates all these years later, it's not because they showed the unvarnished facts just laid out on a slab but because the juxtaposition of the images channeled certain narratives that resonated very strongly with how America saw itself at the time and how America continues to see itself. All of that is, I think, much higher level than Michael Wilson is capable of operating at. He's still kind of at the level of, well, if you show this part of a Charlton Heston speech after this part, and you cut out this line, then it's not a documentary anymore. It's also very clear that Maisels doesn't really understand what kind of film this interview is for. Yeah. It's not until the very end of the conversation that Wilson actually tells him the name of the film, and so it becomes a kind of an ambush. It's uh, very much a bad faith interview of exactly the kind that 
that he would accuse more of giving. I like that Albert Mazels was sort of like amused by the title and he sort of understood that it was just an attention-seeking gimmick. Now, before we put this conversation to bed, you know, every scene of this movie is my favorite scene. It's really hard to pick a favorite <laughs> scene. It's it's all killer, no filler in this. But if I had to pick a scene that I think delivered the thesis of the movie in its purest, most crystalline form, it is the gated community scene. <laughs> you know, you've seen Michael Moore documentaries. You've seen that they depict gated suburban communities as these places where scared white people go to show shut out poor non-white people. But Michael Wilson is here to tell you that's not true. Why look at this gated community? There's a there's a black person and he's at the barbecue. What's the problem? Case closed. Yeah, I can't stress enough, you know, since most of you are, are never going to watch this movie, which uh, I understand, <laughs> but I can't stress enough how thin the shtick in this scene really is. Wilson flies to just some random community, some random gated community, I think on the other side of the country. It looks like California or something. He goes to a random barbecue and then he just demonstrates the existence of a few non-white people as if anyone has ever claimed that all gated communities all across America are inhabited exclusively by white people. And hey, there's no fear here. Michael Moore says this is a place where fearful white people go, well, look at this 4th of July barbecue. Everyone's happy. They're going to eat a pie. Yeah, would you believe these people aren't scared? They live in a gated community and, they're, <laughs> and they all seem to be incredibly well off. <laughs> so the woman who runs the barbecue says something that is... Is really the key the key line in this movie and there were to the effect of i know that michael moore lives in a completely different world than i live in in my world everyone is gets along they're happy they love one another in his world it's not that way and i understand that he does that he lives in that world and that's fine i don't fault him for that it's when he insists that we see our world like he sees his. That's what bothers me. And ultimately, <laughs> that sentiment is what is driving this movie. That is the idea that motivated Michael Wilson to leave his wife and newborn child behind for a year and a half, spend his savings, travel all over the country, meet Penn Jillette, go to Toronto. It, it was that idea that along comes this solitary voice on the American media landscape, this documentary filmmaker who makes a movie every three to six years, who wants me to see the world in this very challenging and difficult way. And, and I need to... I need to find a way to stop this. <laughs> yeah, this what I love about this movie so much is that despite the fact that it is a very right wing movie that's undergirded by a strongly reactionary view of the world, the filmmaker can't help punctuating it with and ending it with these kind of flourishes about how, hey, at the end of the day, we all want our we all want the same things. And we're all just living our truths. The great thing about America is that, you know, you can you can say whatever you want and people can agree or disagree, but you get to say it anyway, except for Michael Moore. And it's not because of what he believes. I'll fight to the death his right to believe what he believes, but it's because he he put this part of the Charlton Heston speech before <laughs> this other part. And he says he's from Flint when he's actually from Davison. And because you can't actually just get the gun at the bank, you have to fill out a couple other forms to get the gun. That, that, that's, that's the only reason why I have a problem with Michael Moore. Not, not because of what he believes. <laughs> It's pure irony poisoning, but I love this movie. <laughs>
<laughs> well, there you have it, folks. 300 episodes still going strong. Here's to another 300. What say you, Luke? Yeah, it's pretty amazing how far this uh, this show has come since we started it in the dying days of Bernie Sanders' first presidential run back in 2016. We still haven't had uh, our very own Roger Smith on the show. So I want to say to Michael Moore, uh, who does follow me on Twitter now. Wow, how things have changed <laughs> since 2016. <laughs> Michael, if you're listening, do come on Michael and us. Uh, we'd love to We'd love to chat. I suspect we've missed the opportunity, but the highest level version of this show would be if we sat down with Michael Moore to watch Michael Moore Hates America, which I'm guessing he's uh, he's never seen. Maybe that's the 400th episode spectacular. I would genuinely love to get his take on this movie. Michael Wilson shouldn't be all that surprised that he couldn't get Michael Moore to sit down for an interview in a movie literally called Michael Moore Hates America. <laughs> One more thing I'll say about the movie. Towards the end, we see this guy, this military veteran who became an amputee after the Iraq war, who Michael Moore used some news footage of in Fahrenheit 9-11. It was some news footage where he was saying something like, oh, I, I don't understand why I'm here anymore. It's, it's been so hard. It's, it's so hard knowing that I won't have the same life, you know, words to that effect. And this guy made a whole career for a couple of months in 2004, going on the news, going in various anti-Michael Moore documentaries saying, Michael Moore does not speak for me. How dare he use that footage? of me. He was in every one of these anti-Michael Moore documentaries. It was just so fun seeing him again. It's just so fun being reminded of him. And it made me think of just like how far we've come on this podcast, how many other characters have emerged in our in our cosmos since then, and how many more characters will emerge in the future. So looking forward to what's coming up. Yeah, thanks so much for listening, everyone, throughout our 300 episodes. As always, you can find an extra episode a week and lots more bonus content at patreon.com slash Michael and us. We hope you'll consider contributing if you're not already. And here's to another 300 episodes. Now watch this drive. Take